So if you've got your Bibles, let's uh, find, let's, uh, you, you say, well, we finished our study of 1 John. Let's flip all the way back again. 2 Peter, let's stand as we open God's Word together. 2 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. I'm starting this series, as Pastor Ben mentioned, called Pass It On. And we're going to be looking at 10 essential truths for every heart and home, or foundational truths, we'll call them. And this morning, we're going to start with one that deals with what becomes the authority for all the rest of them, and that's the Word of God itself. So if you found your place, beginning with verse 16, it says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on that holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed or made more sure. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God. Father, we thank you for this word on the word and the importance of this message. Lord, I pray that as we study this passage today, as we look at this entire series, Lord, that we will have a new sense of urgency when it comes to passing it on to the next generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. If there was ever a time where we needed a miraculous touch from God on a new generation. I think it's today. But a lot of times what takes place isn't necessarily a miracle. There was um, something in the late 1970s referred to as the miracle in the Meadowlands or the miracle at the Meadowlands. Now, you'd have to be a pretty avid football fan of the 70s to know what I'm talking about. But if you had grown up an Eagles fan, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. In 1978, the Eagles beat the Giants in a game that they had no business winning because of the miracle at the Meadowlands, at the, at the stadium there, at the Giants Stadium. What had happened is the Giants had basically secured the victory. They were winning by about five points. And the only way they could lose the game, because there were no timeouts left, basically they just had to fumble the ball away. In fact, if the quarterback had just kind of kneeled the ball, the game could have, they could have run the clock out. They had, a, had enough plays left and, and so little time. But the quarterback decided he was going to make a handoff to the tailback. And when he did, he fumbled the handoff. The, the exchange did not take place. And the quarterback for the Eagles picked up, he scooped up the fumble, and he went the other way for the, what proved to be the winning touchdown and broke the hearts. It was kind of brought a, it seemed like a, a curse on the Giants at that time when it came to the Eagles and that big rivalry. It became known as a miracle. 
And unfortunately, it seems like the, the miracles happen at all the wrong times for all the wrong people. Sometimes it seems to go against us. And, and you say, what does that have to do with passing it on into faith? I think sometimes we realize the importance as parents, as grandparents, as one generation, handing off certain things to the next generation. And, and they're already going to face opposition at any point in a, in a football game. Uh, if a quarterback hands the ball to the running back, that running back still has a challenge ahead of him. He's going to have people coming at him. He's going to get knocked every which way. But lose people are going to be trying to strip the ball. But at least, at least he has a chance if the quarterback can just give him a good handoff. Don't fumble the handoff. Now, I could talk to some folks here this morning, and I could get people like Ethan and Cooper and others who have stuck the ball in the gut of somebody else, and you're like, hey, it's not just the responsibility of the quarterback. He's got to receive it well, too, right? I mean, you, you've, got to, you've got to stick that ball in their gut and hope that they grab it and they hold on and, and fight. And sometimes as parents, though, when it comes to taking the foundational truths, we don't realize how important it is for us to give them a good handoff. We want them to receive it. We want them to hold on to it. And I'm talking about these foundational truths, the truths of the faith, those things they must hold on to. And so many times, somewhere in the exchange, the ball gets dropped. There's an urgency today for for reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a desire of this church. There, there's something that is really important to the heart of this pastor, and that is that we reach the nations and our, our neighborhoods, the next generation with the gospel of Christ. We want so desperately to pass on the message of that gospel, to pass on these foundational truths we're going to be talking about. But here's what's happening right now in the world today, and especially in the United States today, and that's we're not even handing the ball off good to our own teammates. We're not even handing the ball off well to the next generation, to our own children. It's not that we're just not reaching those that are unchurched and outside uh, of our seemingly our sphere of influence. We're not even reaching those who are in our sphere of influence. We're not reaching our kids and reaching our grandkids with the gospel. The latest information from a Pew Research says that millennials, speaking of those born after 1985, are about half as likely to believe in God as their parents. They're about half as likely to attend a place of worship as their parents did. They are about half as likely to believe in absolute truth and that the Bible is true as their parents. And those who do believe, those in the millennial generation that do believe in these foundational truths that we're going to be covering over these ten weeks, they are about half as likely to say that what they believe is actually important to them. And so we're not even making the exchange. Not only are we not reaching outside of our family and our communities and, and reaching more people with the gospel, we're not even keeping the people under our own roofs, if you will. And all religious groups are reporting that behaviors that the Bible refers to as sinful and destructive and able to ruin your life, that Every major religious group in America is, is opening up to more tolerance of those immoral behaviors like fornication, homosexuality, and other sinful 
other things the Bible calls sin and, and destructive in your life. Now, every good teacher and every good coach here this morning knows that there are certain fundamentals, certain foundational truths that you're going to have to say at some point or another in a lesson plan over the course of a season and in a, in a classroom. You're going to have to say, if you don't get anything else, get this. I say that in, in the, the, the Bible classes I teach over at Emmanuel. I, I will have four or five things during the course of a semester. I'll say, if you don't get anything else, get this. Get this down. And as a pastor, and and in our ministries here at Trinity, and much more importantly, in your home as parents, I think that these are some things we're going to be looking at today and over the next nine Sundays, that you guys, as uh, as members of the community, but especially in your own home, you guys are going to have to say to to your kids and to your grandkids and to the children you have an influence over, be it in ministries in our church or throughout our community, you're going to have to say, here, if you don't get anything else, be sure you get these truths. Because these are essential to the faith. Everything hinges on whether or not we believe these things. And our beliefs will shape what we value, and what we value will shape our behavior. And so many times, Christians are out there trying to modify everybody's behavior. We think that the purpose of the church is some kind of pragmatic, just to get everybody to behave like we want them to behave. And if you focus on behavior and don't go back to beliefs, you're not going to make a good handoff. See, if, if we just try to shape behaviors later when they're grown and gone, if they didn't have the beliefs handed off, if they didn't secure those beliefs, then the values and the behaviors will ultimately be compromised. And so we're going to look at some essentials of the faith. Uh, Next Sunday, we'll look at creation. Do we really believe in a creator God? We're going to look at good and evil in the world, the fall and the need for redemption. We're going to look at the first advent, the, the, the coming of Christ the first time in his sinless life. And then we're going to look at his atoning death on Palm Sunday. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll look at the resurrection. After that, we'll look at the, the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at the importance of the church. And then we'll see the return of Christ. And we'll close out by looking at eternity. The fact that there is a heaven and there is a hell and you will spend eternity somewhere. And so these are ten foundational truths. And we need to be sure we hand this ball off well. We need to pass these truths on to the next generation. But in attempting to do that, attempting to pass on what we believe, we're often found very presumptuous. In other words, we, we don't ask this question, or perhaps... We don't answer this question for our children and our grandchildren, the next generation, the kids in our Awana program, the uh, kids in our student ministry. I know that they're hearing it here at Trinity, but, but by and large, uh, across the nation, they're not hearing the whys. They're hearing the what, how to live, and that sort of thing, but they're not hearing the why behind all of that. And we're not answering the question, who says, or who says so? Now, those in my generation, the, the Gen X, before the, um, uh, 
millennial generation came about, there was a simple answer for who says so. When you would ask, how do you know, or is this true? We, we were the, my generation was the because mama said so, or because daddy said so. When you ask a question, if you question their authority and their final authority in any matter, the answer that you got was, because I said so. And that was enough. And so my generation tries that, and we get away with that for a while, right? When they're little and when they're growing up, and we expect a certain behavior in their life, well, why? And we answer just like our mom and dad answered, like their mom and dad answered, we answer, because I said so. But it only works for a little while, because one day they're going to be out from under the authority of mom and dad, And because I said so didn't work. Not only that, they're going to figure out that we were flawed. We said a lot of things. We said that Santa was going to bring certain things. We said that if you don't behave in certain ways, here's here's what the consequences are going to be. And they start to discover mom and dad weren't right all the time. They're not the perfect authority on this issue. And they disagree with my philosophy teacher at the university. How do I know? Mama said so and daddy said so doesn't always work. How do we know? How do we know what we believe is true? Now for most of the theological questions starting next Sunday through the end of this study, the the answer of who says so is going to be simple. Well, the Bible says so. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is our source of authority. But mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, a wanna worker, youth worker in our church, everyone who cares about anybody and everybody around them who cares about reaching the next generation, who wants to see us win people to Christ and pass on the faith, I promise you there's another question that is begged by that answer. The Bible says so. Because this generation, the millennial generation, when you say, Well, the Bible says so, and I can show you in the Bible where it says it. They've got another question. And that's the question we didn't have answered for us. That's the question our parents didn't have answered for them. That question is, well, how do you know the Bible is true? Am I right? That, that's the question we didn't answer. That, that's the, so often we're not answering that for our kids, and we're not answering that for our grandkids. We've just said, well, God said it. That settles it, believe it or not, and they're going, how do you know God? How do you know there is a God? How do you know God said that? How do you know the Bible just wasn't made up? And most of us shrug our shoulders and say, well, you you just have to believe. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and everybody else can use that argument. The Buddhists can say, well, you just have to believe. Anybody from any religion or any cult can say, well, you just got to believe, you just got to trust me on this. Why do we believe? Why do we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God? How do you know the Bible is true? This question was presented to a scholar by the name of Bodie Bauckham, a great Bible teacher, strong advocate for the Christian family. He went to Oxford University and was 
using the Bible as the basis for his answers on the difficult challenges and, and, and questions he was receiving there. And they said, you're making the assumption that the Bible is true. And he had to do a little research on why he believed that the Bible was true. They said, before you just make the assumption the Bible is true, tell us why you're using the Bible as an authority. Why in the world would you say that the Bible says so when you've got to defend the Bible? And so he actually was led by the Holy Spirit to this passage that we just looked at. And here's his answer. Now listen to this. When asked again at, at Oxford, how do you know the Bible is true? He said, this, because the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That was Peter's argument. Now, how many of you parents would say, man, I was ready for that one. So when my kids say, well, how do I know the Bible is true? You responded with, because the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. You say, well, that's, man, that's so deep I would have never come up with that. Well, it's right here in the text. and We're going to see that as we break down this text. Now, I'm not trying to give a defense of the Bible. I'm just trying to explain why I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and I want to use the same argument that Peter did in the Bible. It was Spurgeon who said, we don't have to defend the Bible itself. He said, the Bible is like a lion. You don't have to defend it, you just turn it loose. (laughs) Let it defend itself, right? And so that's what's happening here as we begin to read it. We could start with a lot of areas when it comes to why we believe what we believe. We could deal with cosmology like we're going to deal with next week and creation and being and how things came into being and where did it all come from. I mean, that's a pretty good argument to convince some people that there is a God. We could talk about philosophy like one of my favorite apologists for the Christian faith, Ravi Zacharias, will stand and, and philosophers are afraid to debate him because he can give you the philosophical reasons for God and why there must be a God and why every other uh, religion contradicts itself ultimately, but Christianity stands. But I believe the best starting points are, are revelation, how God reveals himself to us, ultimately through Jesus Christ, but also through the Bible, his word. We might call it the, the written word and the living word of God, both authenticating one another. It would be impossible to look at Jesus Christ and his word as being mutually exclusive because both authenticate the other. If you start and you say, I believe that Jesus is real, then everything he says about the Bible, the word of God, has to be believed. If you start with the Bible and say the Bible is true, then everything the Bible says about Jesus Christ is true. So before we get into the other areas, let's deal with this one. Let's not be presumptuous that when I try to explain the death and the resurrection of Christ and heaven and hell and everything else, that that you just automatically believe that the Bible is true because that's where I think that we're dropping the ball first, parents, grandparents, teachers, wanna leaders. I think we're dropping the ball because we're making the assumption that they're going to believe that the Bible is true so if we can show them what the Bible says, 
they'll believe it. Peter did not make that assumption. As a matter of fact, he knew that they were being tested because of their faith. And we're going to look at basically two points this morning, two arguments, the reality of the majesty of Christ and the reliability of the message of Christ. And so he's going to argue from both of those standpoints and leave the rest up to the Holy Spirit. We might call it Christology and Bibliology, but know who Jesus is and know what the Bible is. And this is an argument that he's making to a persecuted church. They're going to be tested. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be, many of them actually are going to give their life for the faith. And if they're going to give their life for the faith, they want to know, are we really sure this is true? Peter, on what authority are are you sure about all this? Now, I'm, I'm about to die for this. Now, don't think that they were just not strong in their faith and that we're strong in our faith than they were back then. Even John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest man who ever lived, he struggled with some things. And before John the Baptist lost his head, literally before they executed him, and he died for what he was preaching, he sent a group of people to Jesus. They had a question. Remember that question? This is John the Baptist, the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who baptized, said he wasn't worthy to baptize Christ, but he baptized him. But now he's about to die for his faith, and he says, Are, are you the one? <laughs> he sent his disciples, Go ask him. Are you the one, or shall we look for another? He, he, he was asking, give me some evidence, give me some proof, give me a reminder, give me an encouragement. And so Peter's writing to persecuted Christians. They're saying, listen, if we're going to stand for Christ, man, we need to know that this thing is real. And we can almost guarantee this morning that your children and your grandchildren are going to be persecuted more for their faith than you were. You better give them something that reinforces the fact that it's real. Let's look at the reality of the majesty of Christ. In verse 16, he says, we, now, by the way, he's been talking about I at this point. He's been speaking first person singular. Now he's talking about all the apostles. He says, we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitness of his majesties. What is he saying? He's reminding them, I can assure you, we did not make this stuff up. It wasn't like Charles Taze Russell, who uh, the, the Presbyterian church refused to ordain him, so he goes out somewhere and he says, let me come up with a new religion that's now called the Jehovah's Witness religion. And we didn't make this stuff up. It's not like Joseph Smith, who disappeared into the woods to hear from the angel Moroni. Take away the eye from that angel's name. It's Moron. I've always wondered about that. He said, no, we weren't that clever. And by the way, they weren't. That's what's so amazing about the, the message of the apostles in the New Testament and, and the whole of Scriptures. God used ordinary men. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, it says that they saw the courage of these apostles, these disciples, that they were 
ordinary, uneducated men. They weren't that clever. They weren't that courageous. They, they were ready to run and hide. We'll see this more on Easter Sunday. But they were ready to run and hide for their lives. They were not bold. They were not courageous. They were not clever. But because they were eyewitnesses, because they had seen the resurrected Lord, they became ordinary, uneducated men who turned the world upside down. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. They had been with him, and because they had been with him, their lives had been changed. And he's saying, listen, we're not clever. We couldn't make this stuff up. We're not courageous. This is what the Lord has done, and we were with him. And we were, he says here, eyewitnesses of his majesty. 1 John 1, 1 and 2, we looked at in our previous series. John says, listen, these things that we have seen with our own eyes, that we have touched with our own hands, we walked with him, we talked with him, we did life with him. And Peter, like John, and John's brother James, was one of the three in that inner circle who knew Christ better than anybody. If there was a flaw, they would have known it. Peter is the one running to hide like a coward and denied Christ three times. Something happened that would cause him to stand on Pentecost preach under the power of the Holy Spirit and see 3,000 people saved, he's saying, we, we did not make this stuff up. Eyewitnesses of his, what, majesty. The word majesty. It's, it's the Greek word for splendor or glory with the prefix mega. We still use that prefix, don't we? It's the, it's the Greek prefix mega, meaning Mind-blowing, huge, large, big. We were eyewitnesses of his splendor. It was overwhelming. It was life-changing. Listen, don't minimize the encounter with Christ, the experience of a relationship with Christ. In a moment, and those of you who have been around me for any length of time know that I don't like to live my life based on the subjective experience. I like to live my life based on objective truth. And so we're going to get to the importance of the Word of God. I I don't think decisions made out of emotional experience will last very long, but decisions made on life-changing truth will. However, that life-changing truth was designed to lead me into a relationship where I know and experience something real with Jesus Christ. And so the fact that I can know him and feel him and experience him becomes very important. For myself, they had an undeniable life-changing encounter with him. Wasn't enough just for them to read about it or talk about it. They had to experience it. Remember in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey He's got all the brochures of all the places he wants to go, and he wants to go see the world. He's, got, he's saved up his money. He's graduated. He wants to see the world, but it's not going to work out. He says, I'm tired of reading about it, man. I want to go experience it. And for a lot of Christians, we've just been reading about it, but we're not experiencing that life-changing encounter, the, the reality of the majesty of Christ in our own lives. Again, we'll get to the purpose of objective truth in a moment, but is your relationship with Jesus so real that your children, that your grandchildren say, listen, I know we, hey, mama walks with him. Dad, daddy, 
and, and granddaddy, they, they talk with him. They, they, something is real happening in their life. Their, their life is changed. They're different because of the fact that Christ is real in their lives. Is that what you're communicating to them? If not, you're not making a good handoff. You're not making a compelling case. If there's not a life-changing encounter, if there's nothing real in us, it's not going to be real to them. So they need to see how real it is in our lives. Have they seen your passions? Have they seen your tears? Do they know your commitments to the cause of Christ? Even sacrificial commitments? Have they heard your prayers to where you are in a conversation with Almighty God in their presence in such a way that they say, God is real, I heard Daddy talking to Him. God is real, I heard Grandmother talking to Him. They've had a life-changing encounter with God, and I know that He's real. They've seen the joy that He brings in your life. When others might be distressed and lose their joy, but there's something that's deeper and something that is lasting and real in your life. They've seen you worship. Have they seen you witness? Do they know he's real because of the reality of the majesty of Christ that you've encountered? So before we get into the second point this morning, ask yourself, do I live like Jesus is real? Am I presenting a compelling case like Peter that I have been an eyewitness of the very majesty of Christ? And then, if I have, what does that say about the Word of God? What does that say about the message of Christ? Now, now Peter's giving an argument based on his walk with Christ before he gives an argument for the Word of God. Keep in mind that the New Testament had not been all pulled together yet, so he had to base his message on the assurances of the Word on all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ. And so let's look at the reliability of the message of Christ. In verse 19, see, not in verse, verse 18, not only were we to hear his voice, but they had already had this word, right? Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. He's saying everything that we heard, verse 17 and 18, on that mountain, and that, by the way, that's the Mount of Transfiguration. You're saying, how did they behold God, Christ in all of his glory? He was not yet glorified even after his resurrection before his ascension. Remember how Christ stood in their presence on the Mount of Transfiguration? He was glorified right there in their midst. And Peter, James, and John were like wanting to camp out there forever like most of us do when we experience something that is real and powerful and, and, and amazing and miraculous. And we're just like, man, we just want to camp out right here on the mountain. And Jesus said, no, 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 we got to go back down from the mountain. we got work to do. And he says, listen, that experience, that moment with him, our encounter with him, just made something else even more real, and that's the Word of God. So we have the prophetic Word made more sure or strongly confirmed. You'll do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. When you are able to encounter Christ in all of His glory, listen to His Word, walk with His Word, have faith in what His Word says concerning Christ Himself. Every Old Testament prophecy 
of the first coming of Christ had already come true by this point. And it was a miraculous thing that they had witnessed. They had heard that it would be the seed of a woman. That it would be the seed of Abraham. That it would be of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David. They had heard that there would be a virgin birth. They had heard that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. They had even heard prophecies concerning the death of Christ in Isaiah 53, which says He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes, by His scourging, this is before crucifixion, they knew Psalm 22, which we better understand now as a messianic psalm, but they knew that His hands and His feet would be pierced even before Roman crucifixion had been invented. You had all of these prophecies coming true. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy that pointed to 69 weeks up until the first coming of Christ, 69 weeks of years, had come true in Christ. Peter Stoner, a man with a brilliant mind, a great mathematician, said this, that for the top eight of the 50 prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament, 50 plus prophecies, for the top eight prophecies to come true in one person, the odds would be one in one quadrillion. The likelihood of all eight of the most important prophecies concerning Christ coming true in one person would be one in one quadrillion, which was called a mathematical impossibility. Not improbability, but a mathematical impossibility. And Stoner, I recently heard Vance Pittman bring this illustration back. Some of you heard me share it years ago here. But Stoner said, for you to understand that, because we can't get our mind around that, he said, if you would take the state of Texas and cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars and start at any point in the state that you want to start, walk as far and as long as you want to walk, and at some point along the way, reach down and pick up one silver dollar that had been marked ahead of time, only one, of all the silver dollars that covered the state of Texas two feet deep. The odds of you picking up the one silver dollar that had been marked are the same odds of all of these prophecies coming true, being fulfilled in one person. Pretty miraculous evidence for Christ. Vance Pittman, when he brought this up, said that, think about it, he said the Quran. The, the book of the Muslim faith was written by one man. It's one book written by one man in one sitting. When you think of the Book of Mormon, one book written by one man in one sitting. Didn't have to find agreement with anybody else. One man, one book, one sitting. The Bible is 66 books. Written primarily in Hebrew and Greek, but some Aramaic, three languages, written in three different continents, with 40 plus authors over a period of 1,500 years, and yet it is one beautiful story, while the other books have their contradictions, even though it was one man, one sitting, one book, 
full of contradictions and all kinds of archaeological evidence standing against what they believe, the Bible being 66 books in three languages, three continents, 40-plus authors, 1,500 years, is one beautiful story of God's redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation that finds full agreement in pointing us to what God has been, is, and will be continuing to do. It's a remarkable book. When we think also that the scribes of the Bible had a meticulous plan for preserving the Scriptures... It was even said thousands of years ago that the whole world could be destroyed if one letter was omitted or added from the Bible. In other words, the scribes took it very seriously. You did not mess with the Bible. Today we have of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, 190 manuscripts, I'm sorry, 10 manuscripts, Only 10 manuscripts, and they say, well, that's enough. 10 manuscripts is enough to say that we have a reliable copy. We have 190 manuscripts of of Homer's Iliad, and almost any college student would tell you that their professor thinks it's pretty reliable. 190 manuscripts. And, And when I say 190 manuscripts or 10 manuscripts, I'm saying going back to within two centuries of when they were written. Nobody had the original, but going back to within the, the first two centuries of when they were written, 10 manuscripts and 190 manuscripts causes them to say we have reliable copies today. And of the Bible, we have 5,500 Greek manuscripts from near the first century. We have 10,000 Latin manuscripts from the earliest translations of the Bible. And the doctrines, the doctrines of the Bible and, and, and the various fragments, remember, but before the third century, before all of this was even combined together, and accepted as authoritative by the church, the New Testament, that is, the canonization of Scripture, in all the fragments, in all the books, all the letters that we find as we pull it together, even the, the less than one-tenth of one percent variances and variations and that cause us to have different translation arguments, none of them affect our theology or what the Bible teaches as a whole at all. And so we have reliable copies of the Scripture that have been preserved for us And discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls prove it again and again and again. And that's why when men like Josh McDowell, who was a lawyer, who said, I'm going to set out as an atheist lawyer to prove that this Bible is not true, that it is wrong in the court of law, I'm going to present the evidence that would say the Bible is not true. As he began to research the evidence, he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He came to faith in Christ and said, listen, the evidence is overwhelming that Christ is who he claimed to be, that the Bible is the word of God, that it's trustworthy and true. That's why smart men like Lee Strobel, investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, set out to do the same thing Josh McDowell set out to do, but not as a lawyer, but as an investigative journalist, saying when all the facts are known, we can prove that the Bible is not true. After he honestly and openly looked at the facts, came to the conclusion that it must be true, that it has to be true. There's too much evidence. See, see we live by faith and we walk by faith, but it's not blind faith. It's reasonable faith. I mentioned Ravi Zacharias a moment ago. That's why so many atheist and liberal philosophers in secular universities refuse to debate him when he comes to college campuses because they're scared of him. They know that he knows his stuff. And they know that they come with anti-supernatural presuppositions not wanting it to be true. Say, well, why do so many people argue against it? Why do so many people not want it to be true? Because if it is true, 
then it confronts us for the sin in our life. Now, we miss the good news that it confronts us in order to save us, to change us with the message of the gospel and the message of hope. But so many people, because they love their sin, they love their life, they don't want to let go of the things that keep them from God, they had rather just say, God doesn't exist, so I'm not missing out on anything. Remember, they didn't make this up. And they couldn't just make it mean anything they wanted it to mean. Look at verse 20. Here's the way some in what we would call the neo-Orthodox or liberal community have kind of handled all this. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. You can't just make it mean what you want it to mean. There is a clear, straightforward meaning of the biblical text, and it's our job to find out what it means and to say it just like it says it. It means what it says. It says what it means. So he says, we couldn't just make it to mean what we wanted it to mean. And Paul told Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, that means God breathed. God spoke it. It's been said by Dr. Rogers, God doesn't have halitosis. So when he spoke it, it was true. It was truth without any mixture of error. That's why in our statements of faith we say it has God as its author, Christ as its focus, and truth without any mixture of error for its content. Have we passed that on to the next generation? Do they know why we believe what we believe, or do they just know, well, this is what the Bible says, and doggone it, if you live in my house, that's what you're going to abide by, or do they know why the Bible is true? If we only say the Bible is true, take it or leave it, and not tell them why we believe it's true, not present the very same argument the Bible itself presents, not give the same argument that Peter supplies right here, the same Peter who said that we should be ready to give a defense of a faith, the, the reason for the hope, an apologia. We should be ready to tell people not only what we believe, but why we believe it. Are we explaining to the next generation why we believe what we believe? Look at verse 21. He says, I want you to know, no prophecy came by the will of man. We didn't make this stuff up. Instead, moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God. The Holy Spirit was given us at the same time the very Word of God as men were writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Most don't reject the Bible because they read reject the reality of the majesty of Christ. Most don't reject the Bible because they reject the reliability of the message. Most are, I believe, rejecting the Bible and these other nine foundational truths that we're going to look at because nobody's really given them a presentation of why they should believe it. They haven't seen in parents and grandparents and the generations before them that God is so real in their lives. And they haven't seen in the generations before them a reasonably argued defense on why we should believe the Bible. You say, Pastor Robbie, man, is, is that really important? Absolutely it's important. It's vitally important. Your pastor, your youth pastor, and the others on staff can't do all of that. It's got to take place in the home. It's got to be real in the home if we're going to pass it on. And here's what I fear is happening today in the church, and here's what I think statistics bear out. And that is that one generation just said, 
well, you're not supposed to question the Bible, just believe it. The next generation said, okay, and so they embraced parts of the faith, but they didn't embrace the faith wholeheartedly. And they didn't know why they embraced the faith. They just said, I was raised that way. And then the third generation is saying, well, we don't have to live out a life just because we were raised that way. You better give me a better reason than that. And they don't have the reasons. And so that's why in churches all across America today, churches all across the Bible Belt today, there will be a lot of uh, dear saints of God. And 60% of some communities over the age of 50, they'll be in worship today. And about half of their kids will be in worship somewhere today. And about one-fourth of their grandkids will be in worship. Well, some place of worship today, because while they believed it and while they were willing to die for their faith, possibly, they didn't know how to pass it on. And this morning, as we look at what Peter's doing here, I pray that parents and grandparents are learning from what Peter wrote, learning from the Bible. Here's how we pass it on. Here's how we pass it to the next generation, to the next, by saying, Jesus is real. Look at my life. I walk with him. I encounter him. His majesty is so real today that you can't deny the change that he's bringing in my life. And then secondly, I can show you the reliability of the Bible itself. We answer those tough questions. Oh, you may not have the answers when they first bring them to you. And yes, you might have to say, let me call Pastor Robbie. Let me call Pastor Ben. Or let me call someone, you know, that, that philosophy professor at university, he has his PhD. Let me at least call somebody who studied this a little bit more than me. And let me see if there are some answers. And I guarantee you there will be some answers. Most just haven't been presented with the evidence. So I want to invite you this morning. I want to invite you to abandon any spiritual laziness, any intellectual laziness, and commit to say, these foundational truths we're looking at, starting with the Bible being the authority, we commit to pass these truths on. Not just because I said so mentality, but we commit to pass these truths on. I want to ask everybody to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes.